The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Here at the Guild, we have a roster of live events that happen throughout the opera season, such as pre-performance lectures, artist interviews, and opera courses that run in the afternoons, evenings, and weekends. And our podcast episodes frequently draw upon these classes and events for our content. So for today's episode, we are looking at a topic that we covered in one of our opera boot camp classes at the Cosmopolitan Club in New York City. I have the absolute pleasure of lecturing there eight weeks every semester, and our classes are always full of great discussions as we dig into the history behind the operas on stage at the Met. So for today's episode, I thought I would share one of our introductory tours from Opera Boot Camp, focusing on Donizetti's Tudor Queen operas. These operas have garnered a lot of attention this spring, and there's a wealth of history connected to these bel canto masterpieces. So in the rest of our time together, we're going to take a survey through the important background information and also touch on musical highlights for you to look out for the next time you see or hear these works performed. So English monarch history clearly fascinated Donizetti and audiences in Donizetti's time, with lots of different operas being written based on these kind of historical characters. And I think if you look at some of the films and television shows that we see kind of in and around uh, television today, we still have this kind of interest and obsession with this period in history. So as I was preparing this lecture, I was trying to brainstorm all the different shows and movies I could think of connected with Tudor history or Queen Elizabeth I. And I was thinking in the lines of television shows, there is Wolf Hall, which was first a book by Hilary Mantel and then a television series by PBS. We have, of course, The Tudors, created by Showtime. The final episode of The Tudors aired in 2010, but it's still a very popular show. Elizabeth I, The Virgin Queen, is a television series by Masterpiece Theatre. The White Queen by Stars Network, not so much about Elizabeth I, but still connected with this interest in English monarch history. We also have Rain by the CW channel. So that's another avenue into this history and actually connects with some of the Tudor Queen operas today as it's based on the life of Mary Stuart. And then in the realm of movies, we have Elizabeth the Golden Age featuring Kate Blanchett and also The Other Boleyn Girl, which was a movie from several years ago featuring Natalie Portman, Scarlett Johansson and Eric Bana. So you can see just, I just tried to think off the top of my head what were some of the different pop cultural references that we have to this period of history. And so we still are fascinated by it today. There's still interest in the lives of these incredible uh, royal families and all the different intrigue and love triangles and dramatic things that they lived through. But if we think back to Donizetti's audience, why was there this spurt of interest at this time in the early 1800s in Italy in English monarch history. Well, if we look at what was happening in Italy politically at the time, it's important to understand that Italy was not actually a country yet. It was still a collection of city-states, little principalities, and papal states, and pockets of land controlled by the Habsburg Empire. In 1829, what is now modern-day Italy was comprised of the Kingdom of Two Sicilies, the Papal States, a kind of a principality of Tuscany, the Kingdom of Sardinia, also a separate principality in Lucca, also the Kingdom of Lombardy and Venezia, as well as some other smaller little areas that were ruled by aristocrats or lords. 
So the concept of a ruling monarch, a single person over a vast unified country was a very exotic concept. It was very interesting to Italian people at this time, especially given that these ruling monarchs in English history held such an incredible amount of power. I mean, think about the power to create a whole new church to separate from the Catholic religion for mostly personal reasons was a really radical thing. It is still a really radical thing. So it's important to understand that Italy is not a country yet. It's still fighting and evolving to become a country. And so the idea of a single ruling monarch is really interesting and enticing for Italians at this time. Now, if we look at where these operas fall in Donizetti's output, the three that we consider part of the Tudor Queen trilogy or the Bel Canto trio is Anna Bolena, Maria Stuarda, and Roberto Devereux. Anna Bolena was written in 1830, Maria Stuarda in 1835, and Roberto Devereux in 1837. Now, these are not the only operas that are based on English Tudor history. There's actually a whole roster of operas that are based on this type of source material, and it's also not just Donizetti who's writing these operas. Rossini, Mercadante, Pacini, and Camille Sasson all have operas that they wrote within this time period, roughly between 1815 and 1883. I know that's a large time span, but it's also covering both Italian and French interest in this topic. And so all of these composers, in addition to Donizetti, had operas that they composed based on this period of history, based on English history. And it's important to understand that Donizetti's Tudor trilogy or as we like to call it, the Bel Canto Ring Cycle, was actually not conceived as being any kind of connective trilogy at all. He didn't intentionally write them to be thematically connected or even musically connected. So the through thread that we have in these operas is certainly the theme of the history they are based upon. But Donizetti didn't conceive them in the same way that Wagner conceived his Ring Cycle as being connected as one long story with musical themes themes and characters that come up in all the different operas in the cycle. We don't have that with Donizetti, but because these operas go so well together as a set of three, that's why we tend to refer to them as the Tudor trilogy. Now, something that I found immensely helpful when I was first getting into these operas was kind of mapping out the historical people that are being represented in these stories, just to make sure that I had all of the people and the facts straight, and also try to sort out a little bit uh, the actual historical facts being presented in the opera, things that were accurately portrayed, and also things that were interpolated or elaborated upon, because the operas are not 100% historically accurate. So I think it would be helpful if we go through the three operas and talk about the actual historical people that each plot is based upon. Now, when I was in high school, I remember my English teacher, Mrs. Bergstrom, reciting a little rhyme to us to help us remember the order of Henry VIII's wives. It went, Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And our first opera in the cycle is focused on Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn. So Henry VIII, King of England, who came from the House of Tudor, was first married to Catherine of Aragorn. Henry and Catherine had one daughter, Mary, they had no sons, and around the time that Catherine was basically getting too old to have children, Henry VIII falls in love with Anne Boleyn. Now, he really wants to marry Anne Boleyn, but in order to do that, he has to divorce his first wife, and the Catholic Church would not grant him a divorce. So he ends up creating his own church, the Church of England, gets a divorce granted, and then marries Anne Boleyn. The opera, Anna Bolena, picks up at the point where Henry VIII has now fallen out of love with Anne Boleyn and has fallen in love with the woman who would become his third wife, Jane Seymour. Now, similar to the situation with Anne, he couldn't marry Anne Seymour until he was no longer married to Anne Boleyn, but Anne Boleyn gets conveniently beheaded, and then he's able to marry Jane Seymour. And in the opera, we get the sense that Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour were close friends. Jane Seymour was a lady-in-waiting to Anne Boleyn, and Anne Boleyn in the opera confides in Jane that she feels like Henry has fallen for somebody else, but she doesn't know who it is. 
And so there's a great duet scene where basically Jane Seymour admits to Anne Boleyn that she is the woman that Henry has fallen for. And you have this fantastic duet confrontation between the two of them. Now, it's also important to note that the connective thread in this trilogy of these three operas is Queen Elizabeth I. And so in many productions of Anna Bolena, there's usually a little red-headed child that appears alongside Anne Boleyn. And in the Mets production, I very vividly remember this, because even though there is no music written for this child character, it's an important linking element if you are trying to connect these three operas. Because this adorable little red-headed child that you see on stage with her mother who is about to get beheaded eventually becomes the queen. So she is our connective thread and she actually has a singing role and makes an appearance in the next two operas in the trilogy. So that's Anna Bolena in a nutshell, but let's now move on to the second opera in the cycle, Maria Stuarda. The title character of Maria Stuarda is Mary Stuart, who is the cousin of Elizabeth I and the only surviving legitimate child of King James V of Scotland. Mary Stuart, or otherwise known as Mary Queen of Scots, had a fraught relationship with her cousin Elizabeth. So it's important to remember to keep the family names straight. The Stuarts and the Tudors are two separate family lines. Henry VIII was a Tudor, Elizabeth's father, and the sister of Henry VIII, Margaret Tudor, married King James of Scotland, and their daughter is Mary Stuart. So the point of confusion is that we have two Marys that are kind of closely related in this larger family tree. So you just have to remember that Mary Stuart is the cousin of Queen Elizabeth I, and Queen Mary, or Mary Tudor, was the daughter of Catherine of Aragorn and Henry VIII, and so technically Elizabeth I's half-sister. And just for those of you who are interested in history, it is that Mary, that Queen Mary, that they call Bloody Mary for her ruthless execution of Protestants. So back to Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, cousin to Queen Elizabeth I. Initially, she was a threat to Elizabeth because she made a claim to her throne, believing that she was the rightful heir to England or more legitimate than Elizabeth. Then Mary Stuart ends up marrying the Dauphin of France, who becomes King Francis II of France. But then, after they were married for about a year, Francis dies and Mary moved back to Scotland and married a man by the name of Lord Darnley. Lord Darnley turns up murdered in his garden, and people suspected that Mary was responsible, so because of this she began to lose favor with the Scottish public. Fearing that she had no friends in Scotland and no friends in France, she ends up fleeing to England and asking for refuge and protection from her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I, whom several years earlier she had tried to overthrow. Elizabeth and Mary actually never met face to face. But Elizabeth tolerated her presence in England initially until Mary was suspected of being involved in a conspiracy to murder the Queen. So she, Mary Queen of Scots, was executed for plotting an assassination attempt against Elizabeth I. Now we have to pause here for a moment because those of you who know Maria Stuarda the opera know that one of the greatest scenes, one of the most notorious scenes in fact, is the confrontation scene between Elizabeth and Mary. So if you're wondering, wait a minute, why is there a confrontation scene if Elizabeth and Mary never actually met face to face? Basically, Friedrich Schiller, who wrote the play on which the opera libretto is based, played kind of fast and loose with history here. Historically speaking, this never actually happened, but dramatically, it's so fantastic to have these two amazingly strong-willed women, powerful women, who are ruling their own countries, meet face-to-face -face and confront each other. One of the most well-known lines in the whole opera comes from this confrontation scene, when Mary Stuart turns to Elizabeth and says something like, Impure daughter of Anne Boleyn, you speak to me of dishonor? You are a prostitute. You are unworthy and obscene. The throne of England is sullied by you, you vile bastard. And in the libretto, the Italian word is vile bastarda, which has a nice punch to it when you say it in the original language. 
And this moment became so well known because in the dress rehearsals for this opera before it made its world premiere, this moment, this confrontation scene led to the most epic diva catfight in the history of opera. As Harold Rosenthal described in an article written in 1966 in Opera Magazine, quote, At the rehearsal, Anna del Sere declaimed these lines, he's referring to the vile bastarda, so she would have been singing Mary Stuart. She declaimed these lines with such passion that Ronzi di Benis took them as a personal insult, she would have been singing Elizabeth I, and rushed at del Sere, pulling her hair, punching her, biting her, and hitting her on her face and breast. Delcere returned in kind, but the soprano got the better of her rival, and Delcere was carried fainting from the theater. In a letter to Jacopo Ferretti, the librettist of several other Donizetti operas, the composer wrote, You know of the conflict between the women, but I do not know if you know that Ronzi spoke against me, believing me out of earshot. She said, Donizetti protects that whore of a Delcere. And I unexpectedly answered, I do not protect either of you, but those two are whores, and you two are whores. Be convinced, either be ashamed, or be quiet. I said no more, the rehearsal continued, she sang, and the matter went no further. Despite Donizetti's confidence at the time, Rosenthal continues to write about how the matter did go much further. In fact, the King of Naples took great offense to this scene as well. It caused the Queen great distress when she witnessed it in the dress rehearsal. And there was a whole host of other problems with censorship, changing the story, etc., etc. But eventually it made it to the stage in the version that we know today. So obviously we need to hear some of this confrontation scene. We need to hear that line, vile bastarda. And so we're going to listen to an excerpt of this featuring Elsa Vandenhever singing Queen Elizabeth I and Joyce DiDonato, one of my all-time favorite mezzo-sopranos, singing Maria Stuarda. Oh, my God. 
Okay, so where were we? We talked about Anna Bolena, we talked about Maria Stuarda, now let's touch on Roberto Devereux. The title character of Roberto Devereux refers to Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex. He was the stepson of Robert Dudley, and it was Robert Dudley who was known to have been Elizabeth I's favorite at court. She was said to be in love with him, and she was furious when Robert Dudley took a wife, as it meant that she and Robert could never be together. So Robert Devereux was not Robert Dudley's son, but his stepson, and it is said that Devereux then became the favorite of Elizabeth I later in life, even though there was a significant age difference between them. Historically speaking, Robert Devereux ends up involved in a rebellion against the Queen, which eventually gets him beheaded. But to liven up the drama a little bit, Donizetti takes some historical liberties and fabricates a rival love interest for Elizabeth that leads her to signing Devereux's death warrant. The act of sending the one she loves, even if he did not return the affection, to the chopping block is all too much for Elizabeth in the opera, and she has a mad scene to end the whole work that critics generally say interpolates history quite a bit. Now let's listen for a minute to how Donizetti starts this opera because the overture employs a really clever little tactic inserting a tune that we all might know. That's right. Donizetti drops in God Save the Queen, immediately constructing a musical backdrop for the opera and transporting us sonically to merry old England. So these operas were obviously popular. They did very well in their time. If they hadn't, Donizetti would not have kept writing them. But then they kind of fall off the radar. Through the Verdi era in the early 1900s, we never see these operas come up or be revived again by opera companies until we have a group of singers that start to bring these operas back into the public consciousness. So who were some of these women and what did they sound like? The first woman that we need to touch on is Leila Genser. She was born in 1928, died in 2008, born near Istanbul in Turkey, and made her operatic debut singing the role of Santuzza in Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana. Leila Genser spent most of her career singing in Italy and was most active from the early 1950s through the 1980s. She made only a handful of recordings, but she had such a huge fan base that one of the things people talk about all the time in connection with her is the numerous amounts of bootlegged recordings that exist and how prized these recordings are amongst opera fans. She became very well known for bringing Donizetti's Tudor operas back to the stage and was especially loved for her interpretation of Elizabeth I in Roberto Devereux. So we are going to listen to a recording of Genser singing an excerpt from Roberto Devereux, 
This is recorded in 1966. This is the Quel Sangue Versato, and I believe that this is one of those precious bootlegged recordings of a live performance. So the sound quality is not fantastic, but this is a big part of Genser fandom, and she is absolutely fierce in this clip. This is from the end of the opera where Elizabeth is going mad after being told that the man that she loves is actually dead.
The next singer we're going to listen to is Montserrat Caballé, a Spanish soprano born in Barcelona in 1933, and she really championed the bel canto repertoire throughout her career and became strongly associated with Donizetti, Rossini, and Bellini roles. She had her huge breakthrough stepping in for Marilyn Horne in a Carnegie Hall performance of Donizetti's Lucrezia Borgia. In an article in NPR Music, her voice was described in this way, quote, This voice never boasted the sheer lusciousness of Leontine Price or the sword-like thrust of Birgit Nielsen, but Caballé had a honeyed quality in her timbre, huge range, and fabulous agility that she deployed like a magician in the bel canto operas. She often portrayed noble women who expressed themselves in flowing legato lines that were tailor-made for her, end quote. And she's particularly well-known for what her fans call floating pianissimo, the ability to sing incredibly softly, but incredibly beautifully. So we're going to hear some of this glorious voice. This is Montserrat Caballé singing the title role of Anna Bolena, and this is the El Dolce Guidami. This is part of the mad scene where Anne is facing her imminent death and she starts hallucinating about her wedding day to Henry VIII.
And since this voice is so incredible, we're going to hear one more short clip from Caballé. This is an excerpt from Maria Stuarda. This is right before Maria Stuarda is led to her execution and all of her followers and those who are loyal to her are gathered around her and she leads them in a prayer. And you can hear how Caballé is singing over top of the chorus and just listen to the amazing floating pianissimo that she sustains for just an incredibly long time. It's absolutely stunning. This was recorded live at La Scala in 1971. singer who really put these operas on the map again is none other than the amazing Beverly Sills. She is hugely admired, especially here in New York City, for bringing the Tudor queens back into the repertoire, and she is especially well known for her performances of these operas at the New York City Opera. She especially loved singing Roberto Devereux and cites it as a high point in her career. She has been quoted saying, quote, if God gave me back my voice, say, for just three hours, I'd say, get me the old queen's costume, quick, end quote. So let's hear her in this final scene. This is the same scene that we heard Genser sing, as it really was for Sills a crowning moment in her career.
Now, these three women, Leila Genser, Montserrat Caballé, and Beverly Sills, are hugely important in reviving this repertoire and bringing it back to the stage. But we also have some amazing sopranos tackling these roles today. So we are going to start with one of my favorite interpretations of Roberto Devereux, especially the mad scene, sung by Edita Gruberova. Now, I know all of you listeners cannot see this clip as you listen, but her acting is quite intense, and I think you can really hear that intensity in her singing. And I will admit that not every note sounds beautiful. Sometimes the sound is pulled back. Sometimes it even sounds like she's thinning it a little. Sometimes it's a little bit breathy. But basically, it's all because she has committed to an interpretation of this character and is really channeling what her voice can do into crafting the scene. She really sounds like she is teetering on the edge of reason. And let's not forget that this was recorded in 2005, so Gruberova was 60 years old when this was recorded. That's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So here she is, Edita Gruberova, singing the mad scene in Roberto Devere.
Now, we can't have a Tudor Queen's podcast episode without hearing from the powerhouse soprano that is on stage at the Met this season, singing all three operas, the one and the only Sandra Radvanovsky. So to end our episode for today, this is Sandra Ravinovsky singing the title role of Anna Bolena, and this is an excerpt from the confrontation scene between Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour. So this is when Anne Boleyn has confided in Jane Seymour that she fears she has lost Henry VIII's affection and that he's fallen for another woman, and then Jane Seymour admits that she is that other woman. So singing Jane Seymour in this recording with Radvanovsky is Milena Nikolic.
so much for listening to episode 24 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I hope you enjoyed our whirlwind introduction to the Donizetti Tudor Queen operas. We're going to dive into more detail with these operas in future episodes, so keep an eye out for that. But if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a comment or a review in iTunes or donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. To stay up to date on Met Guild events and fun opera content, you can follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild on all major social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, you can find us everywhere. And we have lots of great, interesting posts and really fun photos to explore, so definitely check that out. That's all for today. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.